Matthew 19, verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, it's Jesus, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Verse 18, he said to him, which ones? Yeah, (laughs) there's a lot. (laughs) And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, my favorite, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Father, I thank you for the gospel according to Matthew, this recounting of the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God told by a close friend. I pray that this morning as we hear of a young man searching and seeking, I pray that you would give us wisdom just on life, how this thing has been designed, that we might learn from this story. So give us ears to hear, I pray. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you can have a seat. This is a well-known story if you've been around Christianity. It's a story of the rich, young ruler. The other gospels give us some more information on it. They tell us that he's a ruler. So he's rich and he's young and he's a ruler or he's famous. Isn't that the God of our day? Aren't those it? Like everybody wants to be rich, famous, and young. That's the Trinity we worship today. Not Father, Son, and Spirit, but wealth, money, and youth. Is it not? I'll give you some examples why I say that. There was a survey done just a short while ago on high school students. And it asked the high school students, what do you want to be? What's life about? What's your goal? What's your aim? Top. Number one was this. I want to be famous. You got it. Someone got it right here. Okay. Go back to the 1960s. Same questions were asked in the 1960s. Famous didn't even make the top 10. Like something has shifted and the teenagers did not care what they were famous for. I just want to be famous because there's a lot of celebrities today. Like I have no idea why they're famous. Like, what in the world? Like, I don't want to pick on celebrities. Actually, I do, but I won't. (laughs) 
But you're just like, why? (laughs) And so that's crept into us now. So one of the gods of this age is, I want to be famous. Fame. This guy has it. The second is youth. Don't we worship youth today? Like it is more than any other culture, we worship youth. Just my position as a pastor. 25 years ago, age was seen as an asset. Like, hey, you've gone through some life. Maybe you've learned some things. Uh, Maybe you've had more time to study. So it's an asset for you to help us walk this thing out better. No more. The Hartford Institute for Religious Studies had this um, survey where they looked out at churches that were looking for a new pastor. They said, what are you looking for when you look for a new pastor? Two things. He's got to be funny and he needs to be under 40. I've aged out. I'm 44, right? I'm a dinosaur now. Like, forget him. You're just off. I mean, it's crazy now. We idolize this thing called youth. There's a pastor that says this. He says, they're going to keep on the sleaze market. They're going to keep on chunking out videos like Girls Gone Wild, but you're not going to see one called Grandma's Gone Wild. (laughs) Because we worship youth. It's all about being young. The worst thing that can happen to you today in our age is guess what? You grow old and it's gonna happen to all of us. So we had this idolization of fame and this idolization of staying young and all the money we spend on it. And then how about money? Oh, we idolize money. Everybody wants money. So here's this guy. He's got him. He's got the Trinity. He's rich, he's young, and he's a famous ruler. He's got them all. And he comes to Jesus, and what does he say? Verse 16, what good deed must I do? That word eternal, it's it's age abiding. What do I need to do to get life? Is really what he's asking. And then verse 20, he says, I've done everything that you're saying. And then he says, what do I still do? lack. I've done everything that you've asked. I've kept all these commands. I'm rich. I'm young. I'm famous. What am I lacking? Like this idea, this story, it's so universal. If you've been at Edgewater for any amount of time, you've heard this. Like over and over throughout the Bible, it keeps saying, look out, look out. You can think that it's when I, then I, that you'll be happy but oh, that's a dangerous thing. And the deal with rich young rulers is this. They've got everything that they could ever dream about, right? All that would be the carrot out in front of us that keeps us going, they've got it and they've eaten it and they're still going, what's up? What do I lack? So it's the rich and it's the young and it's the rulers or the famous that feel this angst much more than we do because we always have the next thing, but they've got it all. And when they've got it all, what they found is this. It wasn't enough. I'll give you examples. Madonna. Madonna is probably the longest careered, famous, rich person of my generation. She had her first, first number one song in 1982. That is a long time ago. I, that, that's 32 years ago. She had her first, no more than that. We've got bad math. 34 years ago. She, 34 years ago, she, and she's still turning them out, right? 
She has made a billion dollars. Just to compare Taylor Swift, she's considered the most uh, famous rich young ruler of our day, 170 million. That's just to compare Madonna to Taylor Swift. Massively successful. She was interviewed in this great Vanity Fair article. And they said, you've been so successful. You have this long career. Like there's no one like you. I mean, how does that make you feel? She says this, with every success, I feel satisfied for one minute and then I need more. That's the rich young ruler. How about Andre Agassi? I've mentioned him before, right? The youngest guy to win Wimbledon. Also the first man to wear tight pink shorts. (laughs) You read his autobiography, he says this, I did drugs to destroy my life because I hated it. Everything, when I was growing up, Andre Agassi had it. Brooke Shields, Nike deals, everything. Athlete. I mean, he was celebrated. He goes, I hated my life. I was trying to destroy it by doing drugs. So the psalmist writes this. It's one of my favorite psalms that I meditate on a lot personally. It's Psalm 106.15. And it says this, that God gave them their request, but sent leanness to their soul. You want it? I think God is saying. You're, you're demanding this? Okay, you can have it. Because I want to show you that it will never satisfy you. You can have all that you demand. Sometimes I think we demand things of God. Give me that wife. Give me that husband. Give me that job. Give me that whatever it is. And God says, fine, take it. And then we, when we've got it, we feel this angst in our soul like, oh, man, I thought that would be it. And it wasn't it. And now I just have a starved soul. Because one more thing has been crossed off my bucket list and it still has not made me happy. The reason I think God gives us our requests sometimes, even though he knows it's not gonna satisfy us, is because he wants to reveal to you and me the capacity of the human soul. That the capacity of the human soul is way too great for these little things to ever satisfy their appetites. We're too great. We're too big. We're designed too big. So nowadays we have like study after study after study that shows this. One of my favorites is a book by, it's a uh, Harvard professor named um, Professor Gilbert. He wrote a book called, um, what what was the name of it? Surprised by Happiness, I think. And Stumbling on Happiness, excuse me, Stumbling on Happiness. And in that book, he just starts trying to figure out what makes people happy. What is life? And he did this interesting study on people that had won the lottery And people who had been in an accident severed their spine and were now paraplegics. And he compared them and he walked with them. And here's what he found. The the lottery people had this massive increase in supposed happiness. But then they had this tremendous fall right afterwards. All of them did. The paraplegics, right after injury, massive, deep, deep depression. And then they came out of it. And after one year, the happiness of a lottery winner and the happiness of a paraplegic were identical. And then they started going in opposite directions. Isn't that amazing? We think we can prove Professor Gilbert wrong, right? We think, oh, try me. I'll win the lottery. It won't happen for me. Money will make me happy. But over and over, every single thing, every single study shows us, no, it won't. There's this tension in life. It caused the great thinker Thoreau to say this, most people lead quiet lives of desperation. 
this tension of, ah, oh, I think if I just had a little bit more, I'd be happy. And they get a little bit more and it doesn't. And there's just this kind of desperation. That's what this rich young ruler is expressing. I just feel desperate. What do I lack? Why do I feel this way? So because of that psalm, I have a statement on life. Forrest Gump said, life is like a box of, right? You never know what you're going to get. I have this statement. Life is like a bunch of celery. The more you eat, the the hungrier you get. Because celery is one of the few foods that we eat that it takes more calories to digest it than you get from it. So if you only ate celery, you would starve to death. Life is like celery. The more you eat of it, the more it just shows you you have an incredible appetite and you can't be satisfied. So what's the solution? What's the solution? This rich young ruler comes to Jesus. What does he say? He begins by saying this. It's verse 16. What good deed must I do? What's that called? It's called moralism. What do I need to do to satisfy What kind of moral deed do I need to do? If you watch the trajectory of rich young rulers, here's what normally takes place. They get their money, they get their wealth, they go crazy, do drugs, get kind of crazy and just nutty. But toward the end of their life, what happens? They become moralists. What good deed do I need to do? They all have their cause, their fight, their mission at some point. Man, we're gonna stop global warming. We're gonna stop sex trafficking in Thailand or Portland or Merlin, wherever it is, right? We're gonna push back against uh, the, the workshops, sweatshops of China. They all get their mission. It's, they all eventually seem to fall into this moralism. What good deed do I need to do, all right? So what does Jesus do? This guy brings moralism up. What good deed do I need to do? What does Jesus do? Does he give him the gospel? He doesn't, does he? It's fascinating. He meets him with moralism. You want to talk moralism? Let's talk moralism then. Keep the commands. And that's where he goes, well, which ones? And so Jesus just says, well, don't murder. Treat people right, essentially. Don't commit adultery. Treat your wife right. Don't steal. Treat other people's stuff right. Don't bear false witness. In the workplace, wherever it is, don't be lying, right? Honor your mom and dad, treat your family right and love your neighbor as yourself. Treat everyone right. That's essentially it. Okay, you want to talk moralism? Jesus says, I'll meet you in moralism. This is a theme in the gospel of Matthew. That Jesus meets people exactly where they're at. Just what they think of him. The Canaanite woman, the centurion. You go throughout the gospel. He'll meet people just in their perspective of him. I think he still does it today. Whatever your perspective is of Jesus is going to shape the conversation you'll have with Jesus. So if you're a bumper sticker theologian and you say, Jesus is coming back and boy, is he ticked? That's where he's gonna meet you, right with that. It's why being in scripture is so important because the way we see Jesus needs to be continually reshaped and reformed by the truth of God's word. So, You want to go moralism? Jesus says, let's do it. And I personally believe that this guy, one of two things happened right here. I think Jesus was going to keep going to six commands or seven or 10 or 12 or 60 or 600. But I think this rich young ruler grew impatient 
and, and kind of cut Jesus off. Or I think this, Jesus was getting too close to the command that he knew he did not want to hear. It's the 10th command. The 10th command is don't covet. So before Jesus can get there, the rich young ruler jumps in. Okay, okay, I've done all that. What else do I lack? In counseling, this is one of my keys. When we start talking and I start probing, the minute someone jumps and tries to change the conversation, I know, aha, I got close to something right there. We'll come back to that. I think that's what happened right here. He tries to cut Jesus. You're getting a little close right now. No. So he says, I've done all this stuff and I have no shalom. Everything you're talking about, I've done it. And I think he was being honest, but I'm still lacking something. I think every human heart knows this. Moralism, legalism lacks. It will not get you where you want to get to. You can do all these great deeds and still at night your teeth grind. You can do all these great things and still your heart feels empty or an iron curtain feels like it's been built over heaven. You can do a lot of good stuff, but moralism at the end of the day lacks. And here's why. Moralism with one arm will pat you on the back. Good job. And with the other arm will beat you on the head. It's both deceitful and demanding. What do you mean? Moralism is deceitful, and here's how. Moralism enables you and me to say this. I'm so much better than fill in the blank. I don't do what they do, or I do what they do not do. So moralism with one hand pats you on the back and says, good job, you're so much better than those people out there. And I found that this pat on the back transcends class, money, people, demographics. All of us have a moralism that pats us on the back and says, you're better. I'll give you my best example. So um, almost two years ago, my wife and I got involved with foster care and we start working with foster care. And part of foster care is you'll go to um, appointments with a judge or whoever and kind of advocate for the kids. And so you'll, you'll be in interesting situations with that. Uh, so in one, I'll try to keep this as generic as possible. In one meeting, my wife and I are there. It's before the judge. And uh, the mom is answering kind of charges against her. So everyone's been given this, like, it's this massive amount of information about the things that have, that have happened, the charges against this young lady. It just breaks your heart. You're like, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. Like, just page after page after page. So you have a, a, a second to kind of read through it. And then the judge asked this young mom, said, um, you've read the charges. Do you have any objections? And she said, oh yeah. Page 11, paragraph three, bottom of the page. It says that I am an intravenous drug user. She said, I am not an intravenous drug user. I have smoked meth. I have eaten meth. I have snorted meth, but I have never injected meth. I am not like those intravenous drug users. And there was a moment where I didn't know whether to laugh or cry because she was still clinging to one thing. But the moralism that was patting her on the back was this. I'm not like those filthy intravenous drug users. It's insane. That's moralism. With one arm, it'll pat you on the back. Good job. But with the other arm, it beats you on the head because moralism will do this to you. You never can do enough. 
It'll keep saying, ah, oh, you just need to do it. That's what this guy's feeling. It's the beat on the head. J- just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Okay, you kept five commands, now keep 10. You kept 10, now keep 20. Because if moralism is the answer, when you feel the lack that this guy does, what's the solution? More moralism, more deeds, more stuff you're doing until it beats you over the head and knocks you out. The best example I know is Schindler's List, right? A man that saves a thousand people, just brilliant. And at the end of that movie, it's a painful scene to watch where he's sitting there and he's looking at his wristwatch and he said, this watch could have saved another Jew. It was moralism beating him. You could have done more. You did a bunch, bud. You could have done more. That's moralism. All it does is reveal this isn't going to work. So they've got this interaction, right? Jesus has met him in moralism and he goes, look at, I'm still lacking something. And Mark's gospel says this. At this point, Jesus looked on this rich young ruler with love. I love this guy. I always remember that when celebrities go off the deep end and do crazy stuff and we want to hate on them. Jesus loves that celebrity, loves that rich young ruler, just like this one. He looked on this young, rich ruler with love. And so what Jesus says next is that a deep love for this man, not to take something from him, but to say, here's your solution, bud. And it's tailor fit to him. This isn't God's call to anyone else in the Bible. It's tailor fit to this guy. This is what this guy needs. And so Jesus, verse 21, says, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Here's what's your problem. Here's the deal. Sell everything you have. Jesus does not say, give it to me. This is no advantage for Jesus. Give it away to poor people and then you follow me. That's our story. Brilliant, isn't it? Let me make three simple notes on it. Note number one is this. This soul or this story reveals the great capacity of the human soul. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity in our hearts. How big is eternity? It's really big, right? Eternity is really big. It's bigger than riches. It's bigger than youth. And it's a lot bigger than being famous. So God has given us a capacity that's massive. What we try to do with that capacity is we try to fill it with trinkets or spouses or careers or whatever it is, whatever our our fill in the blank is. And then we realize that they're inadequate. It's like the whole seems to grow the more you've got, the more you try. It's like it just grows and grows and grows and you feel, what am I lacking? I feel like I'm trying to fill the Pacific with an eyedropper because that's exactly what you're doing. I'll give you an easy one. Who here would say, you know, Matt, I have enough money. I don't need any more money. I'm absolutely happy with the money I have right now. Nobody. And we are, we are the richest civilization in the history of the world. And yet we still feel, I just a little bit more. If I just have a little bit more money. We're the 1% of history, America is. 
And no one that I talk to says, you know, financially, I don't need any more. Because there's in us this same thing. It's like trying to fill the Pacific with an eyedropper. So look out. It's there. This thing is waiting for you. It's waiting for me. And I've said this before, and I'll repeat it again. If you are looking to people or circumstances to fill this lack in you, when there's a problem in your life or when there's an issue or when you feel this, who do you blame? People or circumstances. If you look at your life and try to find fault in people or circumstances, will you find it? Oh, absolutely. If my wife was just a little younger, if my wife was just, if my husband just made more, if my, whatever it is, if my house was a little bit bigger, if my job gave me more of this, freedom, more money, whatever it is, if, if, if my friends weren't just such losers, all my friends are losers, if I just had better friends, if my parents hugged me more when I grew up, I'd be happy. How much? One more hug? Two more, right? It, it, it becomes ridiculous. Here's the thing. God's put eternity in your heart. And I don't care what it is on this earth. It's not big enough for eternity. You will never fill eternity. There is in us a capacity that is too great. It's an echo of Eden in us. Because you and I, here's what we were designed to do. We were designed to rule earth and reign with God. That's what we were designed to do. And until we do that, rule and reign with God, we're going to be dissatisfied. That's book of Eden. Or that's book of Genesis. That's garden of Eden. Now, guess what the end of history is for believers in Jesus? We rule and reign with him forever. That's our destiny. That's how big we are created. I want you to be kings and queens ruling with me, beside me for all eternity. That's Revelation, book of Revelation. That's where we're headed. Until then, I don't care what it is. It will never satisfy that angst because your capacity is too big. Number two, this is a cure for the lie of the enemy. In Genesis 3, the serpent approaches Eve and essentially says this to Eve, that forbidden fruit right out there is really good and God's holding it from you. If you could just eat this fruit, you'd be happy. Does Satan still make that same lie today? Oh my goodness. He doesn't have any new tricks. He says the same thing to us. That thing that's forbidden, that forbidden fruit, if you were just allowed to do that, he'd be so happy. Young person, if you were just allowed to have sex outside of marriage and just kind of do what you wanted there, you'd be so happy. I wish I could invite you into my counseling room when I talk to young ladies who have gone that way, believe that lie, and ask them, has that made you happy? Because I have not met one that would say yes. And instead they feel like something's been taken from them. It's a lie that he still uses today. If you just go to the bars and party and have fun that way, man, that'll make you happy. Go to the bar, do a survey, please, and ask them, you guys happy here? No, the reason they're in the bar is because they're not. They feel the angst and the weight of that, and that's their outlet. If I could just cheat a little bit at my business, I could, I could make more money. Fill in the blank. Satan is still coming to us with that same exact lie. That forbidden fruit that you're not allowed to do, oh, it'll make you so happy. It's a lie. 
The truth is this, those things will never be your Messiah. They cannot be your savior. The job, the raise, the car, the trinket, the activity, the person, it cannot be your Messiah. They're too small. There is one savior and it's Jesus Christ. Augustine put it like this, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. That's the truth. And when you get that, here's what happens. All those other things, man, they're they're a servant to you. They're not master of you anymore. The possessions of this young man mastered him. That was his problem. Instead of serving him. When you realize, man, my destiny is to rule and reign with Jesus. He is my Messiah. He is my savior. Then what happens to everything else is you can handle it then. Ah, no big deal because it's not my master anymore. It's just my servant. The job, the car, the whatever, it's just my servant. And whether I have it or not, it's not the end of the world to me because I've been given the best, which is Jesus, Messiah, King of Israel. And one day I'll rule and reign with him. So all the rest of this is minor. That's the perspective of a Christian. That's point number two. Point number three is this. This story tells us the core of Christianity. This is the core of Christianity. Jesus says, sell everything, give it away, follow me. And then verse 22 says, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. This young man knows something's wrong in my life. I'm coming to Jesus because something's wrong. I can feel its weight. I, I think it's maybe a good deed I need to do. I can feel this lack, even though I've kept all the commandments. I feel it. And then when Jesus gives him the solution, he refuses the cure. It's like grabbing a hold of a hot red coal and refusing to let it go, even though it's destroying you because you think it's keeping you warm. That's what he's doing. The very thing he's clinging to is poisoning him and destroying him. You know why? Because what Jesus says, what does Jesus say to him? Blow up your life. Take TNT and everything you've lived for, riches, youth, and fame, blow it up. That's what he just said. And follow me. A homeless rabbi who's headed to Jerusalem to die, follow me. He just asked this young man, explode your life. Your thoughts, your dreams, everything you thought, I want you to detonate it and follow me. The core of Christianity is this. It is not an addition to your life. I thought it would be kind of nice as a little remodel on the side of my house. No. The core of Christianity is take up your cross and follow me. Lose your life so you can gain it. The core of Christianity is blow up your life and start following Jesus Christ. The gospel, if you really read it, demands more of you than you ever thought, but gives you more than you could ever imagine. That's the gospel. When you say, okay, I will detonate my life for your sake. I will take up my cross and I'll follow you. This is the core of Christianity. And the offer is made, if you read the Bible, it's, the offer is made over and over in the Bible to people. Detonate your life for me. Esther, detonate your life for me. Walk into the king's court where you can be killed to intercede for my people. Detonate your life. Abraham, take your son, your only son. You're gonna be the father of many nations. Take him up on this mountain and kill him detonate your life. You go throughout the Bible and there's a call on people. Almost every single great of the kingdom has a call at some point where Jesus, where God says, 
detonate your life. Do you trust me? And will you obey me? Because the core of Christianity is that right there. The gospel demands more of you than you could ever possibly imagine, but gives you more than you could dream or even think. That's Christianity. And this young man turns away in great sadness. Because when we do obey, the Bible says this, I'll give you life and it more abundantly. What is real life, eternal life, age-abiding life, I'll give it to you when you take up your cross and you follow me. I think most Christians at some point in their life are called to do something like this. Detonate your life. Don't, don't, not an addition, detonate it. Do something radical in trust and obedience to me that changes the way you viewed everything. Do that. I think we're all called to do that. I think sometimes we refuse and God will come back again and come back again saying, detonate your life for me. Because Christianity is not an addition. Christianity explodes the house and builds a brand new house, a better house, a house that lasts forever, a house that you love living in. That's this story. I would challenge you today, this week, read this story over and over. Pray about it. It's a radical, radical story. And it fits in a real important narrative. We'll talk about it on Wednesday. Real important. Brilliant. So as we do every Sunday, outside, I'll make two offers to you today. Maybe today you're at some kind of a crossroad like this rich young ruler. Maybe there's been a call in your life where you feel like Jesus is saying, detonate your life. And you need prayer. We'd love to pray for you. So right over here, there'll be elders and Titus two ladies and deacons and leadership. We'd love to pray for you. That God would give you wisdom how to walk that out. Maybe you feel like a Genesis 22, Abraham moment, an Esther moment, maybe a rich young ruler moment. We'd love to pray for you. And then secondly, baptism. Maybe some of you literally need to die to yourself this day and be resurrected. Well, Matt, why should I? Because Jesus, Jesus detonated his life for you and me. It's a love that's profound and it's a love that he looked at this young man with. And I think if if that young man had known that great love, he would have given everything for Jesus. When you realize the great love that Jesus has for you and the fact that he wants the absolute best for you, he's not holding back on you, that's the enemy. That's the lie of the enemy. They say, I want to give you everything, but you got to let go of some things first. When you realize that, oh, you'll give your life for him. You'll detonate it. So maybe today you need to be baptized. That declaration that says, I am marked as one of the disciples of Jesus Christ. And I want everybody to know it here. And I want the angels and spiritual powers to know it as well. I am marked as a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I'm detonating my will and I'm going to start doing his will. That's what baptism is. It's all that stuff. It's beautiful. It's brilliant. It can change your life. It did me. May 22nd, 1992, changed my life. Baptism. So Father, I thank you for this rich young ruler who demonstrates the reality of life something we all sense, every single one of us, this angst, this desperation. And you come sometimes holding an answer that seems so hard and so foreign 
that it really takes faith and trust that you are a good and generous God to allow the detonation of our thing and your life to be lived through us. So I pray for those in here that are in that wrestling match, even this morning. I pray that you would give them wisdom and strength and power. And I pray for those that are struggling to be marked and identified as your crew, baptized by your spirit into the body of Christ. I pray that this day you would give them great courage as well. And for the rest of us, Lord, may we think about this story and what it calls us to do. May we think about this story and the celebration that we are created way too big for this planet to even satisfy, that you have greater things in store for us, that eye has not seen and ear has not heard the wonderful things that you have in store for those that love you. That's what we're destined for. And may we never be satisfied with the trinkets of earth when you offer to us the treasures of heaven. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys.